1: When you hear the name Erwin Rommel, you think of the might of the German army and of a remarkable leader famed for his tactical genius. You might also think of the infamous July 20th plot to assassinate Hitler that Rommel was at least partly involved in and that ultimately led to his own death. In fact, when Rommel is spoken about today, he's represented as the most popular Field Marshal in German history, a man openly respected by his enemies who stood up to Hitler. But is this an accurate portrayal of Rommel? Is he really a war hero and an anti-fascist hero all at the same time? Well, an increasing number of historians are revisiting this history and argue that this Rommel myth is far from accurate. I'm your host, James Patton Rogers, this is Warfare, and to get to the truth behind the legend, I invited author and historian Martin Samuels onto the podcast. Martin is the author of Command or Control, command, training and tactics in the British and German armies, 1888 to 1918. And it's from his vast knowledge of the various elements of the German Prussian military since the late 1800s that we get to understand the real Rommel, where he came from and how he rose to prominence under Hitler. Enjoy. Hi Martin, welcome to Warfare. How are you doing, are you well?
2: I'm very well indeed, how are you?
1: I'm good, thanks. And we're going to get stuck into the life, the successes, the failures and the demise of Field Marshal Rommel, the Desert Fox. We have touched upon quite a few famous Field Marshals on this podcast. We've got into detail about Monty and one of my favourites was looking into Allenbrook, the underrated, the forgotten Field Marshal. But we haven't turned to the other side to look at Rommel. I've been fascinated by Rommel due to the myths that are around him. I mean, unlike so many officers that served under Hitler, Rommel's usually been depicted as a brilliant military leader. He wasn't beguiled by Nazism to the point where he participated in that July 20th plot to oust to kill Hitler. But to what extent is this this myth, this Rommel myth, to what extent is it true was he really that great and that apolitical
2: so i think it is a myth and it's a myth on several fronts and really i think we have to look back to post war germany to understand why that myth came forward so if you look in the immediate period after the second world war germany is in is in tatters but there are people who are saying that there needs to be a rebirth of germany there needs to be germany as part of the modern post war system And they were looking for a German military commander who would represent something that was good about the German army, but wasn't associated with Hitler, wasn't associated with the Eastern Front and the the atrocities that were committed there. So they wanted someone who was outside of the military establishment. And it worked rather well to find Rommel. So Rommel, as you say, was involved in, or at least it suggested that he was involved in the July 1944 plot, he never served on the Eastern Front. He was clearly a very successful general. And so for a variety of reasons, he looked like being a really good candidate. And it didn't cause any difficulty that one of the leading German commanders in the post-war system who wanted to find someone to, to represent the good German commander just happened to have been Hans Spiedl, who had been his chief of staff when he was in Normandy. And so Spiedl was able to find that by associating himself with Rommel, that actually had some benefit to him personally. So there were a lot of people in post-war Germany where it was very convenient for them to find in Rommel this, this clean commander. The reality, I have to say, is rather different. So it's very clear that Rommel secured his position as commander of 7th Panzer Division in 1940 precisely because of his close association with Hitler, So when he was a battalion commander in the late 1930s, Hitler came to visit and inspect his battalion and was extremely impressed by it, uh, and extremely impressed by Rommel, and appointed Rommel to be the military advisor to the Hitler Youth. So that's a fairly, fairly close involvement with the Nazi party. And then beyond that, Rommel then was appointed to be the commander of the escort battalion that supported and protected Hitler during the annexation of Austria and in the opening stages of the campaign against Poland. So there are actually numerous photos of Rommel standing right next to Hitler in those those campaigns. So there's no question that at the start of the war, Rommel was very closely associated with the Nazi party, with, with Hitler perhaps particularly. But I think it is worth saying that actually Rommel was moved away from his role with the Hitler Youth because he kept on trying to get them under the command of the army and move them away from the Nazi Party. And throughout his period as a senior commander in North Africa, there are regular occasions when he explicitly disregarded some of the more extreme orders that the Nazi Party that Hitler was giving. And he clearly became very disillusioned with Hitler as a a commander. But I think that 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 suggestion that that Rommel never had anything to do with it never had anything to do with the Nazi Party is some considerable distance away from the truth.
1: you see that's fascinating to me because on the one side then it's probably a bit too far to say that Rommel is Hitler's henchman who is in charge of indoctrinating the Hitler youth because he is close in the system, but when he can, he uses that power to try and turn people away from Nazism to the point of not even fulfilling the orders of his Nazi overlords.
2: I think one of the things that very much stands out about Rommel in his relationship with Hitler and the Nazi party is that Rommel had been involved in dealing with the, the, the collapse of Germany after the First World War. He'd been in charge of small formations of, of troops. He was only a, only a captain at the end of the war. And he'd been in charge of small formations of troops that had been trying to deal with... The, the collapse of civil society, the collapse of civil order in 1918, 1919. And he was very clearly, strongly affected by that and saw the need for there to be strong national leadership that would restore pride in Germany, would restore Germany's position on the world stage. And like an awful lot of people, he was clearly taken by the, 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 the mesmerism that Hitler was able to, 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 to exude. I mean, you know, it's it's well known that Hitler was was an extraordinary public speaker, that his his ability to connect with people was was quite hypnotic. And it seems pretty clear that Rommel was one of the people that that, that fell for that, that that wanted whatever it was that that Hitler was offering, felt that, that actually would be that would that would be good for Germany. And I think it was then during the course of the war when he saw how detached from reality Hitler really was that his, his loyalty really faded away because of course he was always I think we can say he was always loyal to Germany and he was loyal to Hitler insofar as Hitler was seeming to, to, to support what, what a, a good Germany might, might look like and I think it was that disillusionment that caused him to turn away and then join part of the, uh, join the July 44 plot.
1: Well let's dig a little bit deeper into the life of Erwin Rommel. Where is it that he came from? What sort of family background was he from? I assume he's quite an affluent, perhaps even aristocratic background within Germany, but maybe I'm wrong. Where does he come from, Martin?
2: So Rommel isn't a Prussian. Okay. Rommel is absolutely not part of that Prussian world. And in fact, he's not born in what was seen to be Prussia. And in fact, when he joins the army, it's not the Prussian army that he joins. So Rommel was born in November 1891 in Swabia. It's an area of southwest Germany quite near Stuttgart. It's a Catholic part of the, of the country. It wasn't part of the German Empire until 1866. And in fact, Württemberg, which is the area that he came from, was on the other side in the war in 1866. So he's, he's not a Prussian and he has absolutely no military background whatsoever. His father and his grandfather were both school teachers. His father had done military service, but he'd done military service as as most people had. So there's no no military connection in the family whatsoever. And they're a they're a well-to-do middle-class family, but they're, they're they're nothing special. And they, as I say, have absolutely no military connection whatsoever. But Rommel is just this determined, bold, incredibly vigorous young man. And from an early age, he says, "I'm going to join the army," and his family is saying, "Well, why are you wanting to do this? What's this? This isn't something that a Rommel does." And he is so determined that they say, "Okay, if you want to join the army, you can." And so, in 1910, at the age of 19, he enlists as an officer candidate, and then in 1912, he's commissioned into the Wurttemberg Army. So, the and I say he's not a Prussian. And Württemberg has its own army. In fact, you know, right up until the end of the First World War, there are, in fact, four armies in Germany, the Württemberg army being, being one of them. It's entirely subordinated to the Prussian army, but it is, strictly speaking, a separate army. So he's commissioned into Infantry Regiment 124, which is part of the 26th Infantry Division, which is part of the 13th Corps of the army, but it's the Württemberg Corps of the army and it's commanded by the Duke of Württemberg.
1: I feel like we have a long way to go from this fledgling, young, militaristic Rommel, who is on the peripheries of the peripheries of what will eventually become the German military. But at this point in time, when you're of the the lower of the low in Württemberg, you've got a few ranks to climb before you become the Desert Fox. So all I can assume is that he must have excelled during the First World War.
2: Rommel had an incredible time in the First World War. So in August 1914 he's mobilized with his infantry regiment and they march into France and he's involved with the in the in the, the battles of the borders the frontier battles in the early part of the war and then he's with his regiment through for about a year until the late summer of 1915 and he gets a very very strong reputation as a very bold and resourceful and determined commander. So he's only a lieutenant at the time, so he's only commanding a, a, a platoon, but he gets a very, very good reputation. He's quite badly wounded on one occasion, and he escapes death on numerous occasions, but he, is a, he clearly develops this reputation as a born soldier. And then towards the end of 1915, Württemberg raised a mountain infantry battalion, and this is designed to work on the eastern front, where there are lots of areas of mountainous terrain and so Rommel is summoned to become a company commander in that new battalion. And there he's commanded by an officer called Major Spressa, and he and, Sp- and Spressa just absolutely hit it off together. And so Rommel then spends the rest of the war, or at least 1916 and 17, in that that unit, which gets expanded from being a battalion, it becomes a regiment, and it is the absolute... Elite peak of the Württemberg army. It's one of the best regiments in the entire German army. If if you can talk about you know the German armies, perhaps more appropriately. But the key thing is that he then doesn't serve on the Western Front again. He serves on the Eastern Front, particularly against Romania in 1916, and then he plays a key role in the Caporetto offensive in October 1917 against the Italians, and the. What's important there is that he's not in the trench warfare, the static positions of the Western Front. He's in a mobile situation. So there's lots of scope for initiative. There's lots of scope for movement and maneuver and using the incredibly quick brain that he had to be able to understand tactical situations and make the most of them. So by the time he gets to Caporetto in 1917, October 1917, He's Brusser's right-hand man, and regularly, when they go into operations, he is in effect commanding a battalion. He's very often given several companies. The regiment worked on the basis that it didn't have battalions within it, it was just a collection of companies that would be put together, built for the task in, in hand, and Rommel would normally be given the biggest and most important of those. So he has a reputation of being a very, very bold, very decisive, very cool commander. And he then gets given the unit that leads the German offensive in October 1917, with the aim of capturing the most important feature in the area that the Germans are attacking. And in the process, with his few, effectively his single battalion, he causes the equivalent of an entire Italian division to surrender. And his main weapon in doing it was his handkerchief.
1: All right, Martin, go on. You've hooked me in. How how does Rommel make an entire Italian army surrender with a handkerchief?
2: So what he does is he leads his men through the gaps in the Italian lines. And so he's regularly spotting where, where the Italians are and he's not attacking them. He's working his way behind them so that then he appears behind them. And the Italians are so shocked that suddenly these German troops have appeared behind them that they simply don't know what to do. And in this state of complete confusion, rather than trying to attack with his his quite small force, which might reveal just how few men he has, Rommel acts with incredible boldness and he effectively goes up to the Italian positions and waves his handkerchief and basically indicates, you just need to surrender now, don't you? And the Italians are so shocked that these German troops have appeared deep behind their lines completely unexpectedly. And the boldness of this German officer, this young German officer, who clearly must have a large force because he's so boldly walking up to them and, and, and encouraging them to surrender, that in fact the Italians then do surrender. And I say it's almost the equivalent of an entire Italian division, well over 10,000 soldiers surrenders to Rommel. He never had more than a thousand men under his command. And and at the key point where he captures the most important strategic site, he's actually got less than a hundred men with him, and he causes at that point, he causes two entire battalions to surrender to him and he has less than a hundred men with him. Wow, so
1: Rommel had read the rule book. I mean he knew that all war is deception and most literally put that into place. What sort of reputation did this give him with his men? I mean, was he incredibly well-liked and revered? Was he feared? What sort of leader was he? He's obviously one who who led by example, but was he one who was liked by his men?
2: His men loved him. They found him absolutely inspiring because one of the key things about Rommel was he combined bravery with intelligence and with, with compassion. So Rommel's key skill was he... He could work out in advance exactly where on the battlefield he ought to be, where the key point would be. And very often that's absolutely in the front line. With the, with the handkerchief, it's in front of the front line. But at other times, it's it's a bit to the rear or, or just, just so that he can command. And he he knows where the point, the place is that he needs to be to have the biggest impact. And so his men can see... He's incredibly personally brave. He's taking all of the risks that, 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 that he's expecting them to take. But he's really, really clever in the way that he's manoeuvring his unit. And he they can see that he's doing it, therefore, in a way which is making the best use of their efforts and is most likely to protect them from being killed. So in that example of Caporetto, when he causes many, many thousands of Italians to surrender, his unit loses only about a dozen men killed and a couple of dozen injured. So the losses of his units tend to be certainly in the first of all remarkably low, and so his men know that he's looking out for them. So he has a, an incredible reputation with his with his men. His commanders think he is outstanding, and that gets recognised by the by the establishment. So there was a German medal called the Pour le Merite for 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 merit. And it is the German equivalent of the Victoria Cross, but, but but in a sort of rather different way in that most of the time it was awarded either to a senior commander for an amazing battlefield command decision, or they started issuing it to fighter pilots who were shooting down the enemy. So very, very few were issued to frontline infantrymen, less than 100. Rommel got one. Wow.
1: So this is a man who really built his reputation during the First World War and made himself stand out to others around him. And surely it was this then that must have propelled him during the, the interwar years. Was he key and vital into designing and implementing and to, and to rebuilding the German army under Hitler? Was it that point that he starts to rise up the ranks or was this something that was already in place through the
2: 1920s? So Rommel has a really fascinating period of service during the interwar period. So you would have thought that with that kind of reputation that he'd gained from from Caporetto, that he would be propelled to stardom, and he wasn't. So he is one of the 4,000 officers who's retained in the post-war German army, and he gets the glamorous posting of being with an infantry regiment commanding the machine gun company. And he stays there until 1929. So he doesn't do anything particularly interesting. He's not particularly noticed. He's just quietly working his way through, spending his time in the same regiment, in the same place, not really doing anything that would be particularly outstanding.
1: Do we know how he handled that? Because I remember doing our episode on Pattern. And he had his own experiences during the First World War, but that interwar period was just hell for him. He almost went mad with the, with the boredom of it and the fact that he wasn't able to, to, to build himself up to test his, his, his mettle in battle once again. Was Rommel struggling with similar things at this time, or did he feel like his time would come?
2: I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that he was struggling. I think he was just settled. He was married, he was uh, bringing up a family... He was just settling into life and enjoying his profession, as far as we can we can tell. But then that all changes at the end of the 1920s, and he then gets selected for an absolutely plum posting. So he gets selected to join the teaching staff at the infantry school in Dresden, and and this this is this is sort of like the equivalent of of Sandhurst for for, for the British. So it's the place where every single officer candidate goes through for, part, for a key part of their training. So although it's the infantry school and it does do specialist courses for infantry officers, every single officer going into the German army goes through the infantry school. And it's a small staff. There's, there's only about 40 staff in the, in, the, in the school and Rommel gets picked for one of those, one of those posts. And there are suggestions that... Rommel had been making connections during the 10 years up to then, and that there were people in the establishment who were aware of him and pulled a few strings to get him that that posting. And it's that posting that turns things around Rommel. So he then spends most of the next 10 years, most of the period up until the the Second World War starts, he then spends in a series of postings where he is an instructor or new officers. And that, that does two things for him. One is that it means that by the time the Second World War starts, if you don't know Rommel in the German army, you've probably been hiding under a stone. That, that he, has, he has probably taught about a quarter of all of the officers in the entire army. And his style of teaching was based on his experiences in the First World War. So although his famous book, Infantry Attacks, is only published in 1937, it is essentially based on the lectures that he gave when he was a tutor and instructor at these army colleges. And it's reported that he talked about his experiences well over 300 times. It didn't take much to get Rommel to talk about what I did in the war, but he did so in a way that was incredibly engaging. So so his, his students really looked up to him, were inspired by him. And I say, you know, so he he had directly taught probably about a quarter of all of the officers in the army. And then when he publishes his book, there are differing reports about how successful it was. What it does appear is that it became a bestseller only after he'd become famous in 1940. But the key thing was that it became a textbook for all officer candidates so he may have only taught about a quarter of all German officers himself, the other three quarters would have read his book. So you get to the stage where by by the the outbreak of war, he is probably the best-known officer in the entire German army, but only in the German army. If you're outside the army, you've, you've probably never heard of him, apart from one other person, Hitler. Because a copy of Rommel's book... Was given to Hitler by his aide, who just happened to have been a former student of Rommel's.
1: And Hitler was interested in this because of his own experiences during the First World War. He's also an infantryman, if I'm
2: correct. Yes, yes, absolutely. So there are a couple of linkages there. So Hitler served in the Bavarian Army in the First World War as an infantryman. So had a real a real connection with with southern German infantrymen, and obviously Rommel was was one of those and rommel also came across as being outside the general staff and so one of the things that that rommel's reputation is that he was this this maverick that he he wasn't part of the establishment and as i said to in some ways he absolutely wasn't part of the establishment because he he never served in the general staff he wasn't a, a prussian he wasn't a, a Junker. but on the other hand as i think i've just you know made clear for someone to have been central to the training of almost the entire German officer corps, it's difficult to say that he's an outsider. But the key thing was that that he wasn't a member of the general staff. He never went through general staff training. He spent 1918 on the staff of an army corps and absolutely hated it. And so in a way, it's not terribly surprising that he wasn't selected for general staff training after the war. He's one of the very few who wasn't but given that he, he detested that kind of work it's not terribly surprising so so in some, in one sense he's an outsider in another sense he's the absolute insider but hitler liked him because he wasn't part of the general staff
1: that makes perfect sense he's an outsider hitler likes outsiders but he's an outsider with enough of a reputation the right medals and that right kind of prowess for for victory in battle that Hitler's going to want yes. in his key man. Absolutely. And so is he handpicked by Hitler?
2: So after the Poland campaign in 1939, the army expands significantly. They're looking for more divisional commanders and Rommel gets selected to be one. And given that he spent most of the first war in a mountain battalion, the logic is that he should be given a mountain infantry division. And he says, I don't want to mountain infantry division. I want a panzer division. That's what's going to win this war. Ah. And Hitler intervenes, and he gets a panzer division.
0: Hey, I'm Don Wildman, and on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies, from stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California to shooting for the moon with Apollo, we've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your
1: podcasts.
0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Right, so we have Rommel, we have Hitler, we have a panzer division, the war is looming. What's next?
2: So Rommel gets appointed to command 7th Panzer Division, one of the new Panzer Divisions, in the spring of 1940. He's only been there a couple of months at the point where the invasion of France, the invasion of, of, of the lowlands happens. And so he's commanding one of a series of Panzer Divisions spread across the front, not the main thrust, that's under under Guderian, further south towards Sedan. but he's commanding one of the thrusts. And he leads that division through the Ardennes very successfully, but so do the other panzer commanders. And he arrives at the River Meuse, and that's where he distinguishes himself, because he then gets to the river, and he's got there a couple of days earlier than the French expected him to get there. And the French say, well, OK, they're a bit early, but it'll take them at least another three days to cross the river. We've got plenty of time to sort out our our defences. And Rommel just barrels across the river. And so within 24 hours, he's made bridge hits. And the way he's done it is by doing what he did in the First World War. So he's personally at the key point when his troops are wavering under the fire from the French defenders on the other side of the river. He's there. He's personally urging them on. When the engineers are building a, a, a pontoon bridge, when he's got his first troops across, Rommel goes and he says, no, that, that pontoon bridge, that's too light. I need something that will get my tanks across. And he personally jumps into the water and starts to, to help the engineers to build the right kind of, of bridge. So he's in the right place at the right time every time, and he's pushing his men forward.
1: And making the right decisions. You can be in the right place at the right time, but you can be making terrible decisions. The key thing here is that Rommel knows exactly what he needs.
2: That's Rommel's gift. He knows where he needs to be, he knows how to inspire his men to do more than they ever thought they could, and he makes the right the right decisions. So he pushes forward with his units, he pushes deep into the French positions, and they just don't know what's hit them. So he so the 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 absolute classic is when about a day after the 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 crossing of the river, he's barreling along with his with with the advanced force of, of his division and he bumps into an entire French armoured division. And this armoured division has significantly more tanks than he's got, and they are better tanks than he's got. And so what does Rommel do? He attacks. And it works because he's right there, and he can see that the French are in the midst of refuelling. They don't expect him to be there. They, They think he's 20 miles away. Their divisional commander is somewhere to the rear, so so he doesn't know what's going on. Rommel is on the spot; he can see exactly what the position is, and he aggressively run, runs, you know, takes his his unit, runs through the French division. They lose 120 tanks in 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 a matter of, of a, you know a, a couple of hours, and then Rommel doesn't finish off the job because that doesn't need to be done. There is there's another Panzer division coming up. He then advances another 40 kilometres that afternoon. And the the French just just are left where they simply have no idea where he is because he is moving so fast and because he's right at the front he knows exactly what he's doing that he's on top of them when when they think he's he's thirty miles away and that's the key that's the key thing that makes the whole French sector collapse in that area.
1: A hundred and twenty tanks destroyed, and then you zoom on through to take another 40 miles. That is astonishing. I mean, in terms of reputation, it sounds like he was pretty well liked after the First World War. But in Hitler's eyes now, this must be someone who needs to be catapulted to the highest levels of the German military.
2: And um, Rommel does everything he can to support that. So Rommel is an incredible self-publicist. So he gets his team to write an amazing history of the division, the campaign during the division. And it's very carefully positioned. So almost every paragraph talks about the general who is doing this and that and being in the right place doing it. He's never named. So there's a little bit of sensitivity and subtlety there. And he then gets a version of that history full of photos of the campaign, a sort of glossy, posh version, and he gives it personally to Hitler. And it doesn't work. So after the campaign the German army is then getting ready for the invasion of Russia of the Soviet Union and for the campaign in the east most of Rommel's other fellow divisional commanders they're given core command so they get promoted and he doesn't so not quite clear why that why that is and I think Rommel himself was getting a little bit impatient and then the British do him a favor so in late 1940 the British in North Africa wipe out the Italian 10th Army. So they use a small number of mobile troops with with, with tanks, 7th Armored Division at, the, at its core, and they obliterate several hundred thousand men of the Italian 10th Army, which is essentially based on infantry. And as the Italian position is collapsing in North Africa, the Germans say, oh, we, we need to do something about this. And so they send a small advanced force and they need someone to command it and Rommel is the person who is chosen. It is possible that Rommel was chosen to command this force because of his previous dealings with the Italians. If that was the if that was the thinking, it didn't quite work out because based on his experience in the First of War, Rommel spent his entire time fighting alongside the Italians with just utter contempt for the hierarchy of the Italian army. He thought that they were completely useless. He had a lot of time for the Italian soldiers and it's very clear that often the Italian soldiers would fight with extraordinary bravery but Rommel did not think very highly of his Italian allies and that caused a lot of difficulty but you could see a logic that who is it in the in the German army in in 1940-41 who has experience of the Italians or oh, Rommel?
1: I mean it, it makes sense on paper but you go in with that much disdain it might not work for a uh... Interoperability, I think, might be the the buzzword to put to put in place there. So, how does Rommel during this point then try to turn things around in North Africa? How does he rise up to become the Desert Fox? So, actually, how does he even get that nickname?
2: So, what Rommel does is again he he does what he's always done. He sees the situation by going to the front. He understands it really quickly, and he attacks. And he 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 pushes forward when no one thought that that would be possible. So he arrives in in North Africa. The British are aware that that he's there. They've just had to send a lot of troops to support Greece against the invasion from the Germans. So the advance stops.
1: And things aren't going well in Greece at this point. And then you move through to Crete, and things go even worse there. So the British are being drained in other quarters.
2: Yes, but the British therefore don't have much in the way of in the way of forces in North Africa but they think well this is probably okay because there's not many you know okay, okay there's a few germans here there's this 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 rommel chap but it'll take them ages before they can do anything and rommel arrives and attacks uh, and he's 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 hardly got any forces but on the basis that just with that sheer the sort of vigor and violence of his attack it just takes the british completely by surprise and they're thrown pell-mell right back to behind Tobruk. And Tobruk itself is only just held. And the line then, Rommel reaches his culminating point. And, and the, the principle of the culminating point is, is one that we'll have to come back to because it's what causes Rommel to come unstuck later on. But the, his, his attack, he just runs out of steam because he attacked so early with such few forces that it was remarkable that he could achieve what he could achieve. But in the end... If you haven't got much in the way of forces, you you just ran out of steam. So he runs out of steam, he's besieging Tobruk, and he settles down facing the British. But the key thing here is that he's just acted with extreme boldness, and he's facing a British army, which during the course of the the interwar period has become very cautious. Nowhere near as cautious as, as the French had been, but it's become, a, you know, let, let, let's, let's just think about what we're doing here. And, and really, the only commander on the British side who was as, as vigorous, perhaps, as, as Rommel had been, was Richard O'Connor. And he was the commander that led that force that, that over, overwhelmed the, the Italian army. You, you ought to do a, a, an episode on Richard O'Connor at some point. He's, he's a very, very interesting character. But O'Connor then gets captured. And there are no other British commanders who have quite that energy and that dynamism. They're just a bit cautious. And against someone like Rommel, caution is actually quite dangerous.
1: And so what kind of ground does Rommel make as he's turning this around? Are we talking hundreds of kilometres across the deserts and towns of, of North Africa into Egypt, to that point where you get to, to Brook, which is that, that holding line for the British and, and really only just held?
2: He gets pretty much back to the border between Libya and and Egypt. And so Tobruk is on the Italian side, that's in Libya. So he's regained pretty much the whole territory that O'Connor had, had captured. So we are talking hundreds of kilometres, and he effectively destroys two entire British divisions in the process of it.
1: This is amazing news for Hitler. A, a big victory, something to report back home, that the Germans and the Italians are working well together to hold off the British. And if they take North Africa, then they have quite immense supply lines to keep Germany fueled for the entirety of the war. So this is a big deal. Does Rommel then get a a blank check to do whatever he wants, whatever he needs? Is everything put at his disposal?
2: Far from it, because this is where Rommel betrays the fact that he's not a strategist. So Rommel is an absolutely brilliant battlefield commander. But what he never quite realised was that the whole North Africa campaign was really just a bit of a sideshow, that the real war was the war against the Soviet Union, and that was where Hitler was focused, that was where the general staff were focused, and that's where the vast majority of forces were were sent. And even if Hitler and the general staff had felt that North Africa was a, a more important campaign just the sheer logistics of supplying a decent-sized army in North Africa would would have just been too difficult. But the Royal Navy had pretty much control of of the Mediterranean. They held Malta. It was always very, very difficult for supplies to get through to to Rommel. So there was never any prospect of him being able to get a big enough army that, that would allow him to advance eastwards into Egypt and capture Egypt. Rommel never quite understood that. Rommel always thought that he could have a bit more. And logistics was for those those pen-pushing general staff officers. They would sort it out. if 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 he just said what he needed and he advanced, then someone would sort out that the supplies would get to him. And they never did. They never could.
1: Never that easy. I mean, in hindsight, it looks so simple, doesn't it? You have to overcome Malta in order to stop those submarines and the aircraft going up taking out those supplies of fuel that are coming in from Italy, rounded across the Mediterranean towards North Africa, that keep those tanks turning, keep his blitzkrieg motoring. But without that, then you've just got hunks of metal in the desert that aren't really going to do too much. And I was talking to Gershom Gorenberg about the North Africa campaign, and he's he's done this fascinating research into the American defense attachés office, who I think was operating out of Egypt, and how there was a a spy in the office who was relaying the movements of Allied forces, of British forces, to Rommel, to the Germans, that then allowed them to move around and to preempt every move the British were making until that spy was found out. And it was at that point that Monty was able to get one over on Rommel.
2: Have you heard this theory? It's a little bit different. It's well evidenced but it's a little bit different. So the American attaché in Egypt, a chap called Farras, he hated the British, absolutely hated the British. And so he was regularly sending reports back to Washington about what was, what was going on. But he was very much a glass half empty person when it came to the British. So he was sending rather pessimistic reports about the British. He certainly wasn't a, a spy. However, what had happened was that the Italian Secret Service had managed to break into the American Embassy in Rome. This was before Pearl Harbor, so when America was still was still neutral. So the Italian Secret Service broke into the American Embassy and they made a copy of the code book. And so the Italians then passed this information to the Germans and the Germans were able to intercept the reports that Ferrers was sending back to Washington and read them. Ferrers had no idea his code had been broken and was merrily sending these reports, but the Germans were reading them. And so very often, Rommel had good information about what was going on on the British side. However, it was from someone who had enormous disdain for the British. And that was one of Rommel's errors, that he trusted what this American military attaché was saying. And what that meant was there were several occasions when Ferrer's only had partial information about the, 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 the scale and deployment of the British forces. Rommel took what Ferrer's said and thought that, that was the whole thing. So when Rommel attacks the, the British in May 1942, he's rather surprised to discover that there's an entire British division there that he didn't know existed because Ferrer's hadn't mentioned it. And he's also a bit surprised by the the strength of resistance that the British are making because Ferrers is saying they're all demoralised and they don't know what they're doing. And they weren't quite as demoralised as Ferrers had suggested. But then the, the Germans managed to spoil this. There is a radio play, a fictional account, which talks about reading the messages that are being sent by the American attaché in Alexandria. And the British say oh well we we had this sense that there was that you know the Germans seemed to know what was going on. Could it possibly be that someone's reading the messages of the American military attache so they tell the Americans and the Americans change their code. This happens in july nineteen forty two so before Montgomery arrives, and the Americans change their code, and suddenly this source of information stops for Rommel
1: I see so in Rommel's mind. He has the earlier information that the British are demoralised and that they're a smaller force, and then the codes stop, and then Monty comes in, and then you've got this ability to then turn this all around at El Alamein.
2: Yes. So Rommel has met his culminating point. And this is where Rommel really overreaches himself. So in May 1942... He attacks the British lines, which at that point are a little bit to the west of Tobruk. So the siege of Tobruk uh, is lifted at the end of 1941 and the Germans push back. The Germ- Germ- Rommel then again unexpectedly pushes the British back and it all settles down just in front of, of Tobruk. He then attacks again in May 1942 and completely outmanoeuvres The British commander, the the, the commander of 8th Army, Neil Ritchie, is sacked by Auchinleck. Auchinleck takes personal command of, of the army, tries to restore the position. The British are forced back to El Alamein. Rommel is merrily talking about seeing people in Cairo for a cup of tea in a couple of days' time, or a cup of coffee in Rommel's case. And so he believes that he has shattered the British army, that he's about to control the whole of Egypt, that he's going to achieve his goal He's got 13 tanks left at the time. The whole of of his army, the whole of the German bit of his army, is only a few hundred men because that's all that's left. And what he fails to understand is that although he has pretty much destroyed the British forces that are in North Africa, the British have several divisions left in the Middle East. So they they pull troops from, from Iraq they pull troops from what was in those days Persia, Iran. Nowadays, they pull troops from from what was Palestine in those days, and they so so Rommel with his you know his dozen tanks and a few hundred exhausted infantry runs into fresh British formations, and he stops, and that then settles down at El Alamein, and and we often say well El Alamein was was a, a brilliant defensive position because it's the only place in the whole of North Africa where you can't turn the flank. You can't go through the desert because the Catara Depression, you, you just can't drive across it in the tank. But it's totally worthless terrain. And El Alamein is a perfect position for the British because it's really, really close to Alexandria. So it's very, very easy for them to supply. Roma is a thousand miles away from his, from his port. So with all of the the, the attrition that the British were able to do to his forces, the supply ships that are going across the the Mediterranean, and even when they get across the Mediterranean and land in North Africa, they then have to drive 1,000 miles across desert roads to get to El Alamein. And so Rommel is at the absolute end of an incredibly difficult supply line. The British are right near their main supply depot. So yes, it's a good defensive position, but actually Rommel is weakening his forces. But this is where I think you start to get the position of Rommel falling falling out of love with with, with Hitler, because Hitler says, no, we've, we've, we've captured this terrain. Every foot of it, we have to hold. You must hold where you are. And Rommel's saying, but this territory is of absolutely no value whatsoever. And it would have made much more sense for Rommel to have retreated several hundred miles nearer to his supply lines, stretching the British supply lines. And in fact, an open flank would have been exactly what Rommel would have wanted, because Rommel was the one who was always very good at going round the flank. And the British were always much better at saying, well, let's just drive through the enemy defensive position. That's much more our style, of our more positional style of warfare. So Rommel gets himself into a very, very difficult position. He overstretches himself. He's overambitious. He's overconfident. Indeed, one of the words that some German historians use about him is that he's rash. And I think it's clear that he pushed things further than actually they could have been pushed. Because even if he had arrived in Alexandria, you can't conquer Alexandria with a dozen tanks. It's just not enough.
1: Wow. So this is the rise of Rommel all the way up to the point that he has the highest possible capital with Hitler and his points of, well, most ambitious and really quite resounding success into the North Africa campaign. But it's at this point that we start to see the fall, the demise of Rommel. And really not through fault of his own, yes, like you say, he's perhaps more of a battlefield tactician than an overarching strategist. Does he neglect logistics? I mean, yes, I think we all do. My, as, as my good friends know, it, they tell me it's all about logistics and they're completely right. But I neglect it too much myself. But it's the point here that Rommel, is his tail is too long and his teeth aren't sharp enough. And he, but he kind of knows this. But it's Hitler who is forcing him to fight on to stay against Rommel's best instincts. And so he starts to turn his own opinion, perhaps ever so slightly, against Hitler here. So is this the start of the fall of Rommel, the demise of Rommel?
2: I think it absolutely is. So Rommel has one last go in the middle of August 1942. He's got a bit more strength, he has a go, but he's now fighting Montgomery. And Montgomery is a classic defensive infantry general and... Rommel bounces from the attack and after that Rommel is stuck. So Montgomery carefully builds up Eighth Army until it's so strong that Rommel, there's, there's nothing he can do. And so at the Battle of El Alamein, Rommel ends up just getting pushed aside. But Montgomery is very cautious, he's seen what, what, what Rommel can do to, to British commanders and so he essentially pushes Rommel gently back. And, it, and it, but, it, but he just keeps on going. And of course, one of the reasons why Rommel does keep on going is that by that time, the Allies have landed in North, in, in Morocco. And so Rommel has another army, the first British army, behind him. And he's got nothing much to, to, to defend against that. So Rommel is pushed back all the way back to Tunisia. There's a, a fair amount of fighting goes on in Tunisia. The Germans throw quite a lot of troops there. But there's nothing really that they can do. The end result is never really in doubt. First First Army and Eighth Army link together and they they destroy the German forces in Tunisia. It's a defeat on the scale of Stalingrad. We don't tend to talk about it because it's not as dramatic. But in terms of the number of German troops lost, it's of a similar scale. Rommel isn't there by that time. He gets pulled out. Hitler doesn't really quite know what to do with him he he has a couple of a couple of posts that he's put into for a little while. The,
1: the desert fox goes back to Germany with his his tail between his legs
2: absolutely yes Hitler sends him for a little while to Greece, but doesn't really that doesn't quite work. He's in northern Italy for a little while, but that doesn't really work so what 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 what's Hitler supposed to do with him? He sends him to Normandy, and so Rommel is given command of the forces that are going to face the Allied invasion. So that, that that comes, of course, in June 1944. And Rommel is there trying to strengthen the defences, and he knows it's probably a lost cause.
1: He does. He goes down there, and he, he writes in his own diary, doesn't he? And he, he's kind of quite candid about, you know, this static defence structure just isn't going to work. And it's unfinished. Those sort of promises about the uh, thousands of... Viderstand's nest groupings that have been put together were just false from the Tote organization, and instead he starts to try and find ways to fill those gaps, putting in Belgian gates and Czech hedgehogs and millions of mines to try and make this some sort of defendable line that stretches from the Norwegian Arctic all the way down to the French border with Spain. It's a, it's a monumental Atlantic wall, but not something that, that Rommel really trusts. And he probably realises that you know his own fate, if not the fate of Germany, is sealed by this point.
2: He does. And the key thing that he understands is the importance of air power. And this isn't strategic bombing. This isn't, this isn't bomber Harris blowing up German cities. This is the power of battlefield aircraft. And he's seen the power of the RAF when he was in North Africa, towards the end of the campaign, and certainly during El Alamein, he's seen that the, the, the Royal Air Force is so much more powerful than the Luftwaffe. The, the Allies have control of the air, and if you've got control of the air, you can't move. And Rommel's whole approach is based on mobility. And so he realises that his forces are not going to be able to be mobile. So he wants them right near near the beaches, so that they don't have to move very far in order to be able to engage with landings. And there's a huge disagreement within the German army about this, and the panzer divisions are not placed in the places that they should be. And of course, the irony is that it is indeed air power that does for Rommel himself. So just a couple of days before the July plot in 1944, Rommel is, is out in his staff car, he's trying to visit his forward troops, and he's spotted by a British plane, and his car is destroyed, and he's quite badly injured, but not as badly injured as was suggested. So the plot happens, the bomb happens, Hitler survives.
1: And is Rommel actually
2: involved in this plot? For a long time, it was suggested that he hadn't been, Mm. and that he was seen as being someone who was well disposed, but not actually involved in the plot. But there is some evidence from... Because, of course, most of the plotters were were caught and executed, and so there's very little in the way of records. But there are are some records that suggest that actually Rommel not only knew most of the, the plotters, but knew what they were plotting about. So I think the odds are that, yes, he was actively involved.
1: And if not, he was wholly complicit.
2: Yes, yes.
1: I see. And so he's injured, but perhaps not as injured as the reports would make out. And it's at this point that Hitler gives him, I wouldn't say a choice, but perhaps his final order.
2: Absolutely. So Rommel is, is at home recuperating from, from his injuries. And it becomes clear that that Hitler either knows that he's been involved in the plot or strongly suspects it. And so Rommel, as you say, is is given what's not a real choice, which is you can be dragged in front of our courts and we can strip you of your rank and you can be disgraced and executed, or you can act like a Prussian officer. And Rommel decides that he's going to take that course. And so he says goodbye to his family and the Gestapo drive him away and he takes a cyanide pill and dies.
1: And that is the end of Rommel. And at a time in October 1944 where he takes that cyanide pill where you've got the Normandy landings that have that have pushed through germany is looking like it's in a terrible state and and isn't really going to be able to to hold back against any of this and all of this of sure of sure would have been in rommel's mind as he saw the demise of his his own forces as well as as well as the the third reich itself martin thank you so much for taking us into details about rommel that i i never knew i never knew much at all about his first world war exploits but you've shown us so well about how it shaped the man that rommel became tell us where can we read more about your research on erwin rommel
2: i recently published a book called piercing the fog of war which is subtitled the theory and practice of command in the british and german armies 1918 to 1940 available from all good retailers of course And, in fact, I'm currently writing the sequel, which will take the story up until the end of the war. It's a slow process. I have a day job that I have to do, which keeps me away from doing research. But in a few years' time, there will be a a sequel up to 1945.
1: Well, we have to get you back on the podcast when that book's out. But for now, thank you so much for your time.
2: An absolute pleasure. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening. A reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at historyhitww 2 On Instagram at James Rogers History and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's.